You're listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR. On today's show, we spoke with Ben Altham about federal politics. Professor Cordelia Fine from the University of Melbourne came in to discuss her new book, Testosterone Rex. Then we spoke with Aidan Fennessy and Peter Houghton about their new play, The Way Things Work, which is at Red Stitch Actors Theatre in St Kilda. And then we had a chat with John Pilger, renowned investigative journalist and filmmaker, about his new film, The Coming War on China. I'm Amy Mullins and I have with me in the studio Ben Eltham, who is here to discuss federal politics. And as we were saying, there's just so much happening at the moment uh, with federal politics. And it really started when... uh, Ben left the studio last week and we saw something significant happen in question time. Um, Malcolm Turnbull was pretty unhappy with uh, Bill Shorten calling him Mr Harborside Mansion so many times, which I can understand is like a little bit irritating and grating, especially seeing as that uh, term came from Peter Credlin. Uh, But then we saw something, he kind of snapped and he just went on a bit of a tirade in question time and... uh, and really started attacking Bill Shorten's character, um, which is not so rare in politics, but I think it was the ferocity with which he went about it that surprised people a bit. Um, so, Ben, what on earth happened during this uh, this crazy dramatic scenario that got the press gallery in so much of a tiz? Yeah, morning, Amy. Oh, sorry. Oh, hello. Morning, Amy. <laughs> Let's try again. Uh, yeah, so... Um you're right. Last week, uh, Malcolm Turnbull did go on a bit of a rant um, in question time. Um, but uh, what was so exciting about it? That's a good question, actually. I'm not quite sure, really. I mean, I think two politicians attacking each other is not particularly... Uh, well, that's not news, is it, really? Um, so, but he did go on a, on a very vicious personal attack against Bill Shorten, and that it definitely energised the backbench of the Liberal Party, who've had a pretty rough year, let's face it. They're behind in the polls, and the government's been struggling. Um, and it was a sort of new and more energetic Turnbull, and I think that did impress some of the commentators in the press gallery, even if I think the jury's out on whether ordinary voters listened or cared. Yeah, and I mean, some people might have been turned off by that kind of behaviour, um, and that's certainly what Bill Shorten has decided to come out with and say, and that he's decided to take the high road, apparently, um, and not call Turnbull names anymore in Parliament. How long do you think he'll last with this goal? Yeah, not very long, I don't think. It's almost irresistible, I think, in the, the combat of Parliament. It's a very combative environment. I think that it, sometimes it does get heated. And it's a performance, remember? I mean, it's a performance not so much for the general public but for your own colleagues. And this was, I think, the key factor for Turnbull. He really needed to come out and impress his backbench because, you know, he's had a very poor year. So I think it's partly that. Um, you know, I... I I'm always very reluctant to talk about this kind of stuff um, when I talk about politics because it's my opinion that it's not very important. Okay, what really matters, I think, in politics is the policies of the government of the day, the things they actually do, are doing, you know, the laws and the policies that they're implementing. And I, I get very, very bored of all of this talk about, you know, uh, Malcolm Turnbull shows he's a strong leader or Malcolm Turnbull gives us his inner strength or, you know, all the rubbish that the press gallery write about this stuff. I think for the most part, it's it's pretty much just piss and wind and you can ignore it. Well, it kind of reminds 
reminded me a bit of the angry Malcolm we saw on election night. He seemed to just let loose. Um, And to me, it wasn't necessarily that he was displaying some kind of strength, but more that he was... um, reacting to the fact that he's under fire from various parts of his party and someone just left his party. It almost felt like perhaps this was a way of reasserting himself and also just reacting against it and trying to show that uh, he's still here and alive. Yeah, well, I do agree it was a glimpse of angry Malcolm uh, and we do hear a lot about what Malcolm's like behind closed doors and he's a lot angrier and a lot more assertive than we see in public. Uh, and maybe this was just another example of what uh, the real Malcolm Turnbull is like if, if, you're, if, you, if you care about that stuff. I mean, for me, the, the, the more important thing is what Turnbull was actually doing in that speech was defending the government's latest savings package, which was a, uh, an $8 billion cut to welfare. So, you know, in, in all the sort of... Um, all the heat and the light that the press were reporting on there, what they sort of forgot to talk about was the fact that there was very, very significant welfare cuts on the floor of the parliament that the government was debating. And I think these are pretty important and worth talking about. For example, the government wants to uh, put everyone um, on new start who's under 25 onto the youth allowance. Now, that's a very major policy change, okay? If you're under 25 and you're currently receiving new start, if the government passes this bill, you will uh, have a massive cut to your income and you'll be booted off new start altogether and put onto youth allowance, uh, which is, by the way, is also judged on your parents' income. So, um, you know, these are significant policy changes and that's why I think we should be debating the policies and not whether it's angry Malcolm or, you know, whether Malcolm Turnbull has impressed his backbench or whatever. Mm. Well, that is true. This omnibus bill, gosh, there's so many of them. I think <laughs> there was only one half they a year ago. They come more quickly than the real omnibuses, don't yeah, they? Yeah, and I mean, they are technically tied to a childcare policy, aren't they? So in order mm-hmm. for the government yep. once again to fund childcare reform, they've tied it to another policy. Isn't this a bit unfair? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Senate has called them out on that already, really. We've seen Nick Xenophon come out this morning and say they're not going to vote for the bill because they don't like the fact that the childcare package, which they support, is linked to the welfare cuts that they don't support. And I think you'll see Labor agree with that as well. So So it's it's unlikely to pass? I think so. I think the omnibus bill is dead in the water. Wow. So here we go again, Um, a government not being able to pass its own policies into legislation. It seems like they're not having a huge amount of runs on the board recently. Well, it's tough for the government because they don't control the upper house. They don't have the numbers in the Senate, so they've got to negotiate every bill. Now, one way they could negotiate every bill is to put these measures to the Senate one by one. So they could say to the Senate, would you like to pass this bill on, uh, on childcare? Uh, would you like to pass this bill on welfare cuts? Uh, they could certainly split the bills like that and ask the senators to vote on them one by one. Now, I think they would get their childcare package up pretty quickly if they did that. But of course, what they also want to do is get some spending cuts in there so they could improve the budget bottom line. Well, you know, if they want to go about linking some spending to some cuts, then they're going to have to expect that senators are going to say, well, hang on a sec, I don't like those linkages. I don't want to do it like this. Well, there's also linkages to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So, you know, that's a significant uh, policy from the Gillard era. Um, And yet that also seems to be uh, its funding is tied to various cuts. Is this, you know, a problematic uh, approach to governing? 
Well, the government said it will tie funding cuts to the NDIS if it can't get its welfare cuts through. And again, this is the kind of approach that the government's taken when it's come to welfare cuts. It's basically saying, support our welfare cuts or we'll go cut something else that you like. And I think that that's incredibly irresponsible public policy. You know, the government says it supports the NDIS. It supports a national disability insurance program. Well, if it does support it, then why is it threatening to cut funding to it? Mm. Well, that's a very good question. And one of the other um, things which seems to have come up and hasn't had a whole lot of coverage, mainly in The Guardian, what a shock. Um, They do some really great work in terms of covering policy changes. Um, Is the uh, basically shortwave radio is going, especially in the Northern Territory via, well, for the ABC at least. This has been, well, I think this has been a big issue out in the regions of Australia, so It has. um, Yeah, this is is well and truly bigger than The Guardian. Yeah, the ABC is looking to abolish its shortwave radio service. Haven't they switched it off already? I think they have actually. Yeah, Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The station's still there, so all of the, the, um, you know, technology is available, they could switch it back on, but they believe it's too expensive. And we saw um, a Labor senator from the Northern Territory uh, get up and question Mitch Fifield about this. And uh, it was particularly disappointing to see Mitch Fifield's response, which was, oh, well, um, it has really nothing to do with me. I can't tell the ABC what to do. Um, And, you know, it's a bit of a shame, but he wouldn't really address... uh, the fact that this is actually a significant way that people receive their information in very remote areas and also that it's very important for emergencies for people to be able to receive information via shortwave radio. So I think um, it really highlighted a, a similar approach, which is kind of, well, I'm not really interested. This is, this is my priority and I'm just going to go focus on that. What do you think of, um, you know, the the coalition's approach to this issue and are they really shooting themselves in the foot with uh, rural and regional Australians in general? Uh, two things, Amy. Uh, one, it, it is definitely the ABC's decision. This was a decision made by Michelle Guffrey, the, the new managing director of the ABC. So Fifield is correct to say that this is not the government's call, this is the ABC's call. But Surely he could make comment on it, though, whether he thinks it's important or not. Well, if he really thought it was important, he could find some money and fund it and tell the ABC to, to keep it on. I mean, it's not that hard. Same but. as the CSIRO when they decided to fund climate change again. Yeah, absolutely. And this has gone back many, many years. The, the government often finds little bits of money for the ABC to keep services on the ABC, you know, so the coalition itself, for example, funded the ABC to do regional newsrooms and to do regional radio because they knew it was important for particularly for national party electorates. Uh, shortwave radio, as you say, is really important. You know, it's important out in the bush. It's important on the seas, on the high seas for yachtsmen and for people um, out in the Pacific, you know, on, in islands to Australia's north. Um, it's a significant service that we're losing. And I think it's sort of indicative of where Michelle Guthrie's going in the ABC. Uh, she's sacked a lot of chief executives. You know, a lot of the senior bureaucrats in the ABC are leaving. Um, and there seems to be a bit of a war on radio. She's a, an internet person. She's a former Google. Digital. 
executive and, and I don't think she particularly has a lot of time for analogue services. Um, and so, you know, this is a saving that she wants to make and she's doing it. Yeah, well, I've got to say I'm an analogue person. I'm analogue Amy, so uh, take that, everyone. Um, <laughs> you put some records on later oh, on. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I like my handhold, handheld transistor radio that is really old school, which uh, my pop and dad used to have doing the gardening. So, yeah, I'm a bit old school, but I still think it's important, though, to look at something that is particularly essential uh, and when it does affect core constituency like the Nationals to be a bit more realistic. Obviously, it's more about uh, whether the, the votes are in it or not. Yeah, well, I guess there's not a lot of votes in shortwave because, you know, by definition, it's not reaching that many people. But I think that misses the point of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I mean, it's meant to be the national broadcaster for a reason. It's meant to reach a lot of Australians. It's meant to have a, a role above and beyond just um, ratings and the number of people listening or watching particular services. Uh, that's always been the idea of the, of the broadcaster going all the way back to the 1930s when it was founded. Um, so, yeah, it is a worry what Michelle Guthrie is doing to the ABC. And um, there's been big cuts to Radio National, for example. Um, another service that's not particularly popular, but very, very important, I'd argue. Yeah, well, certainly um, I'm a fan of many stations and Radio National is one of them. Um, but Triple uh, R still has my heart. With the uh, the Labor proposal recently to talk about cleaning up political uh, donations, which just occurred, I think it was yesterday or the day before, Bill Shorten came out to reset the agenda on political donation reform and suggested that uh, we should change the disclosure limit uh, from 13,200 to 1,000 to ban foreign donations um, and to ban anonymous donations above $50. Um, the Coalition doesn't seem too keen on these suggestions, <laughs> Ben. Why is that? I thought we were on a bipartisan ticket. Uh, no, we've never been on a bipartisan ticket when it comes to donations reform. The Coalition has always favoured a very lax and very loose regime there and, and particularly of anonymity. You know, the Coalition loves to have anonymous donations because... Uh, it's pretty well. It's very obvious why, because they don't then have to reveal who's giving them money, um, and that would be uncomfortable for both the donors and for the Liberal Party itself. And also the funding streams. So Labor gets a significant portion of their funding from unions, also from outside sources, um, and the Liberals don't have that funding source, and so they constantly point to the fact that they're behind, uh, which is probably not the case. I'm sure they're flush, given that Malcolm's made his donation of 1.75 million dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but didn't the coalition say they were looking to reform the donation system post the Susan Lee debacle? Not really. What they said was they would reform parliamentary travel entitlements, uh, but they haven't really said anything about donations themselves. So, you Interesting. know, it's sort of like a watch this space there, but I, I don't think there's any real appetite in the coalition to reform donations. Um, if you look at the very tight embrace of, of certain kind of corporate interests to the Liberal Party, uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons why the Liberal Party would not want to have donation reform. And, and let's remember also that there's all sorts of money laundering schemes that they can use, like this notorious Free Enterprise Foundation, which uh, corporates can donate to that foundation, which then sends all of its money straight to the Liberal Party. So there's so many ways in which businesses and wealthy people can get around the donations laws at the moment. 
we think that something like 60% of the money that flows to political parties in this country is not declared. So we just don't know where the money comes from, which is a pretty amazing figure if you think about it. Yeah, it is. And uh, just finally, Ben, on the coal incident in Question Time. <laughs> uh, Who could forget? Yeah, just the well, I didn't know it was show and tell, um, but Scott Morrison, the treasurer, brought in a big lump of coal, uh, which he paraded around and passed around the back bench to share just what coal feels like and looks like. And it was um, quite farcical, really. But uh, he was trying to suggest that everyone else were coal phobic or they're scared of coal. Um what was the point of this and why do they keep on ramping up the rhetoric on coal? Is this just a continual distraction? I know we, we bring this up, but I really want to um, understand why this keeps sucking the oxygen out of other issues, Ben. Well, I think it's because uh, energy policies become central really to the future of Australia. And so energy has become a very, very important debate. And we've seen that with rolling blackouts in South Australia last week. We've seen that with um, the crying need for reform to our national electricity grid. Um, so there actually are very big picture issues at play here. But why coal? Because it really is completely um, drawing attention away from that issue, to be honest. They are completely separate in in the sense that coal um, is not necessarily the future of energy security, although that's what they're using as a reason to say, actually, we need to talk about coal. Yeah, it represents the total and utter politicisation of energy policy. So basically, the coalition has decided that it's going to fight a culture war on energy, that any talk about energy policy is going to be linked back to renewables are bad, coal is good. And they really do believe this. And it's become an item of faith, if you like, really, particularly for the Liberal backbench, but also for the coalition base. So that kind of 30% of safe Liberal voters that the coalition is now very worried about because of Cory Bernardi and because of One Nation doing so well at the moment. So they're really using energy policy and particularly their love for fossil fuels to show to the conservative base uh, that they are true blue conservatives, basically. So um, it's it's a very, very disturbing development for Australian energy policy, although, of course, you might say that this is the coalition they've been into coal since the year zero. But I, I think it's the, the biggest problem of all, of course, is it's wrong. It's factually incorrect. So coal is the most expensive new form of energy. The national electricity grid badly needs reform. It needs more renewables, not less. The coalition has actually signed up to the Paris peace, uh, the Paris uh, climate change agreement. So of course, uh, we're committed to reducing our emissions. We're going to need less coal to do that. So, you know, on any kind of sensible fact-based, evidence-based reading of energy policy, this love for coal is farcical. It's a joke. It makes no sense. But politically, it's all about appealing to the base. And the, and for the base, particularly for a sort of older um, white Anglo-Saxon kind of uh, voting base that, that is very much the coalition voting base, you know, climate denialism is a, is a big thing, a very big thing. So it's really about pandering to that climate denialist base. Which is kind of a small base when you look at the polls that say so many people are behind renewable energy, but perhaps it's a bit more complex than that. 
Yeah, it's small, but it's rusted on, you know. It's still like 20 30% of the population just refuse to believe in climate science altogether. And, um, you know, a lot of those people feel that they're not being listened to by mainstream politics, um, and these are exactly the sort of people who are thinking about voting for One Nation. So that's really, I think, what's driving the coalition's uh, newfound love affair with coal. Right, right. Well, watch this space as we have been over the last few weeks, Ben. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us in the studio to chat about politics and uh, we'll keep an eye on what happens in the next week. Oh, thanks, Amy. And yeah, exciting show today. Looking forward to Cordelia Fine. Cheers. Yeah, we have her in the green room and I'm very excited to have her in the studio in just about 10 minutes. Oh, great. Thanks, mate. And you're listening to 3RRR. I'm Amy Mullins and this is Uncommon Sense. And I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio Professor Cordelia Fine. And um, she is a professor in the history and science, philosophy of science, sorry, history and philosophy of science, which is a very interesting field in itself um, at the Faculty of Arts. But she's not just that, she's also a psychologist and a scientist, an academic and an author, a bestseller author and she has written a book called Testosterone Rex and um, I'll just welcome you anyway first of all Cordelia. Thank you Amy, good morning. And Cordelia with this book um, it's also first of all a beautiful cover so anyone who's like loves hardbacks and wants a very nice book to put on their shelf should buy it anyway just to look at it but I think you should read it too because um, it covers some really interesting science that's been happening over the years and shows a real progression of understanding of sex as and when we say sex we mean biological sex so um, male or female not gender Um, and so starting out with um, our how we've progressed in our understanding of sex um, you talk about testosterone wrecks and sexual selection and how an understanding of sexual selection which was um, written and uh, put forward by Charles Darwin has somewhat sent people off on the wrong track when it comes to um, our understanding of the sexes. Could you um, expound that theory for us and let us know how that put us on the wrong track? Yes, absolutely. And, And I mean, the reason that I... The reason I called the book Testosterone Rex was to capture this idea that in the evolution of science that you're talking about, um, this this interconnected set of beliefs about, you know, risk-taking, competitive masculinity being something that's evolved in males to increase their reproductive success and is therefore wired into the male brain and fueled by testosterone is really based on last century science. So all of the science has evolved, whether it's in evolutionary biology, whether whether it's an understanding of the influence of sex on the brain and brain development, whether it's in the relationships between hormones and behaviour, whether it's in just understanding of evolutionary process, processes itself, the science has really moved on in really exciting and interesting ways. And yet our, our kind of beliefs about sex and sex differences and evolution of sex differences is really stuck in the past. So and one great example of that is, which I focus on in the first part of the book, is, as you say, this idea of sexual selection. So this is a sort of subset within the idea of natural selection, which is, you know, at least Australia at least, a not sort of not, contra- not controversial idea. And the idea behind uh, sexual selection is sort of characteristics that 
uh, one sex of the species has that gives us an advantage in reproductive success over uh, other individuals of the same sex. So, for example, the peacock grows its sort of extravagant... Uh, extravagant feathery feathery tail because not because it's obviously helps it run away from predators or catch prey it's actually a bit of a sort of um, bit of a hindrance in that respect but that it appeals to the females and if you just say the, the the term cheap sperm everyone kind of immediately can fill in the gaps between cheap sperm and male dominance in 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 the world because there's a sort of interconnected set of ideas that because reproduction is really cheap for males because they only have to contribute that single sperm whereas it's much more expensive for females particularly female mammals because there's that big fat juicy egg there's gestation lactation there's uh, care of the care of the offspring it seems like um, the idea is that there's much more to be gained potentially from a male to um, have many many mates so you can have a much greater reproductive variance as it's known you can have like you know hit the reproductive jackpot if you manage to have a lot of sex with a lot of different mates whereas for females the idea as well look all the all the costs of you know the the uh the time and the energy and the risks of having sex you don't need that you just need one mate and then you're done your job's done and all the females are going to reproduce reproduce the same degree so that idea which came from actually some experiments with fruit flies uh has really dominated um our understanding of differences between males and females this idea being that you know we take the human case it's really only advantageous for males to to compete for uh for mates, for resources, for territory, the kinds of things that will appeal to to females. Whereas for females, it's just that the cost-benefit ratio just isn't worth it. But the, the thing is, evolutionary biology has been in this really exciting state of turmoil for decades now, and these old ideas have really been thrown out of the window. So although this dynamic does apply to some species, there are many other kinds of factors that are actually involved. Uh, it's not just to do with the single sperm and, and the egg. And it turns out that there's a lot of diversity across the animal kingdom in mating systems because of the number of factors that are involved. And because of this, because these things can be with to do with how many mates are available, what are the resources that are available, even within a species, the kinds of ways that animals behave and their kind of core business of reproducing can, can be quite dynamic. And I think one really exciting development in this area has been the recognition of the importance of competition for females and particularly female mammals. So uh, this was really overlooked in the past. Like, why would females have to, have to compete? Because, you know, any female can achieve the modest feat of getting herself impregnated or inseminated by an eager male. But it turns out that actually rank and resources are really important uh, for females' reproductive success. Well, it, it reminds me of um, one of the examples in the book, which is um, about the langurs. Is that how to pronounce it? They're Indian monkeys? I believe so, yeah. Langurs, yeah. yeah. So um, that was an example where it was really important for the female um, monkeys to compete and be... Um, as we, as you say in the book, promiscuous. And when you say promiscuous, you don't necessarily mean the common term that we use to to you to kind of sometimes denigrate people for um, wanting to have sex. You mean actually just people actively, or animals in this case, actively seeking out a mating partner. Um, you know, in a a fair, fairly healthy fashion. <laughs> yeah, I try to use promiscuous in a sort of value-free, yeah. <laughs> judgment-free way, just just actually to try and reduce the amount of kind of technical terms. And that. adjectives yeah. you'd have to use, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, 
it brings and in that um, example, it was just really interesting to see that um, Sarah Blaffer Hardy, who was the um, the Harvard scientist who discovered these monkeys and saw women um, or females, sorry, being uh, competitive, it really opened up her mind to this idea that females could be competitive and would want to be and it reminds me of this idea of um you know a stereotype where females are the passive um people in this scenario or animals or um living beings and then the males are the active um ones how how exactly like are females as active as males in these kind of scenarios. It may not happen all the time, presumably, but, um, you know, with some of the examples you share, how are women being competitive or, sorry, I keep saying women, thinking women, but they're females. Mm. Um, How do female mammals or female animals actually um, display their competitiveness and their promiscuity and why do they do it? Well, look, I mean, I think the example that you describe is a really... uh, important one because it, it you know the the because of the thinking around this idea that it's only worth it for males to compete was so powerful that you know the, the fact that females were actually seeking multiple mates was somehow overlooked and it took this um female sort of harvard phd student actually kind of could hardly believe what she was seeing because it just didn't fit with the prevailing theories. But, you know, the females were seeking multiple partners and that was actually part of this really important scientific insight, which is now a very kind of productive um, basis of scientific research of, well, what are the benefits to females of seeking multiple mates or of promiscuity? Um, And it sort of put research into all sorts of different interesting directions that that it wouldn't otherwise have gone into. Um, In terms of competition, I mean, I think that's, it is amazing how this sort of strong link in our mind between maleness and competition uh, has really, is so powerful. Um, I mean, I I actually remember a few years ago, I went to the RSPCA with my kids because we wanted to get a kitten to keep our cat company. And we were told, that we couldn't bring a kitten home because our female cat Pippi would destroy this <laughs> incomer onto her territory. And we were sort of shocked and amazed. And I think it was because, I don't think we'd been surprised at all if we had a male cat, but this idea that, you know, a female cat would have to be protecting territory and against intruders was sort of shocking to us. So when you look at the the data from, um, from humans, so for example, there's been a lot of interest in... Uh, particularly in economics, for example, on sex differences in the willingness to compete. And it's often presented as, uh, you know, a potential explanation for why women don't get as far up in the workplace, the occupational ladders, as men do, because they're just not willing to take the risks of competition. But actually, when you what you find when you look at those data is uh, that they're pretty contextual. So, For instance, some of the sex differences in willingness to compete, and these are sort of lab-based tasks, so the things like, you know, throwing a ball into a bucket and you can either be paid for the number, like a low rate for the number of balls you get in the bucket or you can compete and get a much higher rate if you throw more balls in than your competitor, right? So what they find is even on these kind of bloodless tasks, sex differences that they see in the kind of traditional... Um, samples for this kind of research, you know, the sort of Western undergraduate samples, for instance, they don't necessarily see those sex differences when they go much further afield in the world. And that's a sort of a good example of one of the points that's been raised about psychology is that so many of our findings are based on, you know, essentially North American um, undergraduate, young undergraduate students. 
Uh, but another thing is even when you change the sort of realm of competition, the domain of competition, uh, to something that's a bit less masculine or a bit more feminine, you, you see those sex differences in competition uh, disappearing or, or even reversing. And I think that's just a, you know, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, it's it would be extraordinary to have a world in which, you know, there is so much status inequality between the sexes and have that not influence things at some some psychological level yeah because i mean you it all of this kind of um well there's a lot in the first part of the book and it's called past and that's around um these uh animal um behaviors and and scientific studies around how animals are behaving and then when you get to the present um part of the book which is discussing current day um you really address this idea of um whether there is a difference between the sexes and if men and women um, are necessarily have different brains or behave differently because they have different levels of testosterone um, and you know as, as we know testosterone is a reason why um, men you know develop their own different genitalia from women and they also have um, you know they look more masculine uh, physically in terms of you know having um, you know being a bit more imposing maybe having a beard um, being a bit more hairy um, so you know there's that really visible part of testosterone and masculinity that we see um, when males have their varying levels of testosterone but then I think what your book is saying is that we make this assumption and we jump to the idea that then necessarily testosterone has an effect on the way that men and women behave. That's right. So we see it as being the kind of hormonal essence of not just physical masculinity, but also psychological masculinity. And this is where it becomes really important to not make kind of uh, simple generalizations about what men and women are actually like. So... Um, so I think one one thing is, you know, you're making this point about how the first part of my book is sort of breaking down this idea that it's only sort of evolutionarily advantageous for males to compete. And that's really important because if you start with this framework of, well, let's try and understand why men are more competitive than women, then, you know, you're not going to be thinking about, okay, well, actually, what are the kinds of domains in which females might be more comfortable? You're not actually going to be collecting those kinds of data. And it was actually often female economists who are saying, let's try looking at competition in different kinds of domains that are a bit less masculine for mm. instance it's like a blind spot that people have exactly it's a form of confirmation bias that you don't you don't expect to find particularly you kind of look for the data that you expect to find not the data that you would have no reason to think that you could find like female promiscuity um, but the other thing is so so then once you sort of started to look more closely at the actual data on sex differences and you find that it's not that men are competitive and women don't like to compete when you start when you think in these kind of gross generalizations testosterone seems like a really obvious explanation for it. you think well men are competitive men have a lot of testosterone and then of course if you've got in your background this idea only males have evolved to compete then it seems like testosterone is a good mechanism for creating that difference but then when you start to sort of think in, in, a, in a more nuanced way and go okay well there could be reasons for females to compete too and actually when we look at the data we find that sometimes females are just as competitive as males sometimes more competitive it depends what environment they're in what kind of social structure and so on what kind of domain it is that then testosterone no longer seems like a good explanation for the sec when you do see sex differences in in competition it's no longer kind of 
something that seems like a kind of powerful explanation of why males and females would behave in different kinds of ways, particularly when you think about the fact that people often focus on the fact that post-pubescence, males have much more testosterone circulating in their blood than females do. There's there's some overlap in how much testosterone there is in, in the blood, but not, not a lot. Whereas when you actually look at behaviour, there's a there's a lot of overlap. Sometimes there's so much overlap that basic, basically they're kind of indistinguishable, but sometimes there are differences. But even when there are differences, they're much, much smaller than the differences in testosterone. And this points to something really important about testosterone and its influence on behaviour. So one is that the levels in the blood, which is what is the easiest to measure and what we sort of focus on because that's where it's sort of significant difference in the sexes, it's just one part of this really complex system in the brain. And there are many other factors involved that, that influence what effect testosterone is actually having in the brain itself. So the circulating level is just one part of a very complex system. And then in itself, the testosterone or the hormones, they're just one part of many, many other factors that feed into decision-making. And so even when you look at the animal literature, you don't find testosterone being this really powerful determinant of behaviour at all. And that, that makes perfect sense when we think about the fact that men have a lot more testosterone than women, but that on the whole, they aren't showing distinct patterns of behaviour. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR. Uh, I'm Amy and I have with me in the studio Professor Cordelia Fine and Cordelia has been speaking with us about her new book Testosterone Rex and um, it's a really great read because well it's based in evidence which is really important these days when we're in a post-fact world Um, but also that it's seeking to deal with something that's just such an outdated um, concept it's been disproven and um, we got to the point uh, just before the break um, and I'll mention the song title before I forget it was Lone Bird Sorry by Big Scary so we got to the point where um, we were discussing testosterone and uh, the the link between testosterone levels and behaviour And we're talking about the fact that it doesn't necessarily correspond. So if you have high testosterone levels, you're not necessarily more aggressive. Um, But your your book gives an example of where um, testosterone levels, well, they're not static. They don't stay the same um, in men or women. And they respond to environmental contexts and social situations. So Cordelia, could you um, share with us that example and how that um, is you know, illuminating as to the real role of testosterone and whether there are other factors at play in terms of what determines our behaviour. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the really sort of exciting and important shifts in science. So, you know, we've talked previously about this sort of shift in evolutionary biology, and this is a shift in behavioural endocrinology or the relationship between hormones and behaviour, which has really shifted away from the idea of hormones like testosterone sort of driving behaviour, but rather being responsive to the social world itself and actually being something that um, enables plasticity, so enables the animal to adapt to its particular circumstances and its particular context. 
And even in even in non-human animals, the kind of subjective perception of a situation can be quite important for how testosterone responds to a particular situation. But of course, when it comes to ourselves, you know, we're the, the, the kings or queens of subjectivity, so this becomes a much uh, uh, more important aspect of things. And some, some really re- interesting research in this area has been really looking at how that kind of subjective perception or interpretation of what is, you know, to everyone on the surface, the same situation or same stimulus can have different effects on hormonal biology depending on how you interpret it. So one study, for example, was done by Justin Carre and colleagues. And what they did is they took advantage of the fact that there had been this very intensive uh, intervention. It was called the fast track intervention. It was a 10 year long intervention on boys who are at a high risk of developing um, you know, criminal or delinquent behaviour. And so there was a control group and the intervention group. And the intervention group uh, involved this, as I said, this 10-year intervention that was really quite trying to equip them in various different ways with sort of social and emotional regulation skills that may have been sort of lacking in forms of scaffolding in their, in the environment that they, that they had. And many years later, those, some of those boys were brought into the lab and they were given, they were put in a situation where they were provoked by someone else. And the experimenters measured how aggressively they responded to that provocation. And they also measured their, the change in testosterone. And this is this sort of recognition of the fact that, as you say, testosterone levels aren't sort of set by genes. They're actually dynamic. And what they found was that in the, the boys who had had the intervention, there was less of a reaction of testosterone, there was less testosterone increase in response to that provocation. And those uh, young adults, those young men also responded less aggressively to that situation. And although the, the experimenters sort of can't establish causality from that particular experiment, statistically it looked like the, 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 the lesser change in testosterone may have been sort of mediating that, that um, less aggressive response. And this is a really good example of how you know, there's a lot. There's still quite a lot of science that sort of simply measures, takes a sort of snapshot measurement of men's and women's testosterone levels. And of course, this doesn't take into account the many other things going on in that entire system. Uh, not least to mention that sometimes testosterone is converted to estrogen in the brain, for example. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's a recognition that when you measure testosterone levels, you're not measuring sex, just pure sex. You're actually measuring, you're capturing the entire kind of social history of that individual and their that particular social context. And of course, that social history and that social context is something that can be very gendered. So when scientists are sort of trying to understand the links between testosterone uh, changes and competition, for example, and they're finding a whole sort of just... The results are really confusing. They're kind of a bit messy and inconsistent. And the explanation, one explanation is that there's so much subjective stuff going on in a competition. There are all these things, you know, how do you how do you think you're going to do? Who's your who's your competitor? If you've just failed, what what's your attribution for the failure? Is it because you think you're no good or you had bad luck? And all these things, of course, can can have an influence of gendered expectations and norms and stereotypes. So even when we're looking at something as simple as, you know, testosterone response to a competitive situation, you're still actually capturing elements of gender in there. 
Yeah, and I mean, you you refer to this idea of a mosaic so that testosterone is just one part of different um, inputs or factors that can actually lead to certain behaviours and outcomes. So um, how, what are the other um, elements in this mosaic of an individual that makes um, men and women behave as they do and how does that really prevent us from ascribing men to have a male brain with you know dominantly male in in inverted commas stereotyped characteristics and similarly female brains with very female characteristics well this is another area where the research has really moved on so sort of the sort of previous scientific models of how male and female brains develop differently really focused on sort of testosterone played this really key role in masculinizing sort of particular circuits in the male brain and defeminizing them and then in, in the absence of this of the sort of female as passive uh, nothing you know nothing in particular would happen in the in the female brain and so you had these sort of distinct male and female circuits and this this model has become much more complex now so it's understood that there are a number of kind of interacting factors and mechanisms, so the sort of genetics and hormones and epigenetic effects and environmental effects. And these can all sort of interact in a very dynamic and idiosyncratic way to, to create what have been described as these mosaics of char- a sort of more male typical or more female typical uh, characteristics throughout the brain. So what that means is that although there are sex differences in the brain, these don't add up in a consistent way to create something that we could kind of sensibly describe as being male brains and female brains. And so that kind of matches actually what we know about male and female behaviour, that people's behaviour is a mix of, on the whole, is a mix of masculine and feminine qualities. And when we, although on average there might be differences between the sexes in a particular characteristic, you can't locate people on a continuum of masculinity or a continuum of femininity they're sort of these sort of multi-dimensional you know it's like a gender pick and mix and so that makes it much more complicated to think about you know the male brain as the cause of sex differences the female brain as the cause of sex differences or indeed testosterone as the cause of sex differences and actually risk taking is a really good example of this because this is again something that used to be thought of as being this sort of single dimension so you were you were a risk taker or you were risk averse and when you think in that way you sort of think okay well men are risk takers and women are risk averse and there might be the occasional woman who's a bit risk taking and the occasional man who's a you know a bit of a girl as we would say um or a girl's blouse as we used to say (laughs) at my school um but you know when you're thinking about this continuum of risk taking you think oh you know maybe it's testosterone so more testosterone more risk taking and actually a lot of research into financial risk taking seems to be sort of implicitly or explicitly has this as their kind of background assumption but when you look more carefully about at risk taking you find that people are quite idiosyncratic you know there's a sort of mosaic i suppose you'd say in the kinds of risks that they're willing to take so people who are willing to take financial risks may not be willing to take physical risks people who are quite happy to take social risks may not be willing to take recreational risks for example and when you look at what it is that sets apart someone who's willing to take one kind of risk but not another kind of risk it's not that one per- some people love risk and some people don't because most people actually don't like risk per se we're all a bit most of us are a bit risk averse it's that we see a different mix of benefits and costs to that risky situation so that's what sets apart someone who 
is happy to take a financial risk. They see a more favourable mix of benefits and costs to someone who isn't, you know, would rather government bonds all the way, but would happy to jump out of an aeroplane on a with a with a parachute, right? So then that starts to be really interesting for looking at sex differences in risk taking. So it's not that women are risk have a sort of negative attitude towards risk and men have a positive ones. It's to do with the mix of benefits and risks. But actually, you know, in in a flawed, unequal society, these kinds of uh, benefits and risks, which, you know, the benefits include not just material benefits, but also sort of less tangible effects on norms, uh, you know, reputation, for example. So it becomes all tied, tied up, for example, with norms and identity. And of course, the fact of, you know, how will people perceive you? Will you get the same rewards for taking that kind of risk? And I think this is so important to think about in relation to these suggestions that, you know, women women aren't willing to take the risks to get on their careers, for example, because you have to say, the question is, well, are they actually operating in the same cost-benefit space? That, do they, when they add up their calculations, do they come to the do they come to the same uh, same conclusions? And you know, sort of a whole host of research from social science suggesting, well, no, there aren't the same benefits to women, for example, to, from negotiating for a higher salary, for example, and there may be greater costs, for example, you know as women become more competent and more successful, they become less likeable and so on and so forth. And there's this um, example of a backlash effect and it's a term that's been used to describe what you're describing really, which is that when women act contrary to their stereotype of, um, you know, femaleness and needing to be collaborative and nurturing and kind and warm, um, and they might be assertive um, or appear assertive in a very male-dominated Field, um, they get there are negative consequences which they predict and often um, experience as a result of behaving in a way that's contrary to the expectation of their behaviour. Um, and one of the examples you gave was Michelle Ryan's study uh, from Exeter University about um, women being less willing to take career risks because they perceived that there was less benefit. And certainly, aren't women just being realists in that scenario? So it's not necessarily their lack of ambition or their lack of confidence, but that they're being pragmatic and uh, avoiding negative consequences that's right. And the, the, the lack of perceived benefit, you know, what they didn't identify, the fact that they were sort of just less invested in their careers, but that it was a perception of less support. They had less confidence that their organisation was a meritocracy. Um, uh, they, they felt they had less support in the organisation. They had fewer role models to look up to. And, you know, you sort of think think about, you know, looking up. And if you don't see many people who look like you, it's hard to not let that influence your um, assessment of, well, you know, am I going to be successful? Can I can I really do this? So that was a really nice example of how, yeah, exactly that, um, the feeding in of the sort of different perceptions of the situation, which I'm sure in some cases had some validity to them, or at least this, the, the research would suggest that, were actually sort of feeding into those, um, you know, quite rational decisions that were less to do with just intrinsically less being interested in taking risks but um 
having different likely benefits and costs to to behaving in the same way. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about um, the idea of masculinity and femininity just um, in kind of closing up this discussion is that, you know, you talk about the idea that um, masculinity and femininity used to be opposite ends of the same scale or a spectrum. Um, But that's not necessarily what the research reveals. Yeah, that's right. So it's sort of it's, it's you know yet yet another shift in thinking that's in the book. So the the sort of first systematic attempt to measure masculinity and femininity to sort of assume that if you were masculine then you were unfeminine. They're kind of polar opposites. So if you if you gave a masculine response on a on a particular scale, then you know you gained a point for being masculine, and then if you gave a feminine response, then you lost a point for being um, feminine, uh, of course. And um, <laughs> typical. <laughs> uh, and but then you know the there was sort of progression. People realised that you could have feminine and masculine qualities, so it was seen as being sort of two-dimensional. But now it's you know it's even more complex than that. So this idea that you don't even just have two dimensions, but you have this sort of mosaic of of characteristics, and and that again makes things a lot more complicated when you're trying to think about how biology may be, um, you know, playing playing a role in that. And one thing I have to say is that you sort of have become. I think a lot of people who work in this area are becoming decreasingly comfortable with the idea of even referring to masculine and feminine traits in the sense that sometimes the differences are so modest uh, and so contextual and contingent on other situations that it almost starts to seem a bit odd to sort of start refer- you know, describing things that are very, very common in women as masculine and things that are very, very common in men as feminine. I mean, it's a useful shorthand, but um, I think it's, yeah just as a caveat to that it doesn't it doesn't reflect the complexity of humanity and how we actually are exactly exactly well um thank you so much cordelia for sharing um the insights that you've got and gleaned from all of your research and the research of others that you've um looked at and really made really um what's the word easy to engage with and very humorous and uh it's really enjoyable read and i highly recommend the book it's called testosterone rex and um it's in all good bookstores i saw it at the readings in carlton just a couple of weeks ago so uh do check it out thanks so much cordelia for joining us thank you amy I have with me in the studio um, some, as I said, important guests, whether they believe it or not. But uh, we have Aidan Fennessy, who's the director of this play, The Way Things Work, uh, by Red Stitch Theatre in St Kilda. And we also have Peter Houghton, who is the one of the actors um, in this play. And there's the other actor, Joe Petruzzi, who I believe is an ensemble actor at, at Red Stitch. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes, fantastic actor. And um, so basically, I just wanted to have a chat about, um, first of all, let's set the scene. So the play is, um, it's about, well, it it starts off being set in government, in state government, Mm -hmm. um, in a minister's office. And uh, Peter, you play a public servant who's actually the secretary of the department. He's the departmental secretary. He's the good guy, in my view. (laughs) All my characters are the good guy. Even the murderer I play later on. Oh, Um, really? Do I sound like I'm in a garbage bin? No. (laughs) (laughs) I actually can't. uh, Your sound is a bit weird, which... Yeah, Yeah, could you go onto mic three, please? Just Just try articulating as well, Pete. Seamlessly moved. See if that... (laughs) Is that better? I think so. 
think I think so. Yeah, oh, they're all looking much better. And suddenly, I like Richard it. Burton's arrived. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you're you're we're in the government office. We're in a minister's office. Mm-hmm. Um, we start off seeing the minister behaving in a very erratic and odd way. Quite. Um, heightened and stressed about something um, and then we see uh, the secretary which you play come in um, looking very public servanty I must say <laughs> was very convincing oh, <laughs> and um, and there's this really fascinating scene ensues um, and some very important props as well mm. uh, which I don't want to give too much away but um, what, like, in that scene, could you give, um, Peter, I'll start with you, um, an example or just a, a feel for what exactly is happening in that scene and what are the two characters um, jockeying against each other about? Yes. Well, I'm a, I'm a kind of bastion of um, public servitude. <laughs> so I'm very, I'm, I'm a good public servant, I think. I've been doing it for a long time. and um, But I do have a little secret that's really a personal secret uh, that I think no one knows about. I can't really say that either. It's, no. it's plot, plot important. Yeah. My minister is a, um, uh, there's no kind way of saying it. He's an arrogant, um, bossy, uh, but kind of playful Aussie politician uh, who's been in charge of a large public works thing, which is a, called the Westlink Tunnel. Um, there's been a uh, quite major stuff up with the tunnel and the way it was built. It's basically going to fall over. Uh, and he's, <laughs> at some point in the near future, because of decisions that he's made, uh, so he's trying to cover up his knowledge of that and how he kind of constructed the deal to build the tunnel mm. and he's co-opting me. So the first scene is really about him trying to get me to support him in the Royal Commission and pretend that I don't know what we both know. Uh, and, of course, he uses every trick in the book to manipulate me, including matey's sort of Aussie friendship and uh, and ultimately a big um, a big card, which I won't reveal, but, yeah. No, yeah. yeah. But in this, um, in this office, which uh, it's very stripped back, there's not a lot there in terms of the set, it really draws attention to your the interplay between your characters and also um, the foul mouths of politicians mm. in particular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that might be just Aiden, you know, yeah. unleashing. No, I, it's not actually. <laughs> the, I, I spoke to a documentary filmmaker a number of years ago who was interviewing... Uh, uh, the Prime Minister at the time and um, I won't say which one it was. Kevin Rudd. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and whenever the camera was supposedly turned off yeah. um, he would just unleash this stream of a chorus of F-words really <laughs> and, uh, and uh, eventually the, uh, this documentary filmmaker kept, you know, decided not to turn the camera off, but yeah. t- told Mr Rudd that he was <laughs> oh. turning it off. So he does have evidence of this, wow. you know, sort of... Which is funny, isn't it? Because the public image of that particular politician was always so squeaky. It was really... I mean, mm. I suppose yeah. they were all like that, really, aren't they? Mm. I mean, mm. never, I've never heard any of them go in that direction, mm. you know, on television. Obviously, they're brilliant at managing their own things but yeah that's the that, that's the um the fun of it that you just get in this room and it's yeah. just, like every, just go for it every second sentence oh, wow. Powerful ever. Yeah. yeah no i i certainly don't mind swear words but i was a little bit surprised yeah. at how many there were yeah. but as i say it is actually quite realistic and that that isn't the only politician who has a, a pretty foul mouth <laughs> mm. um and certainly it it talks about it speaks to the culture in politics um you know which is really very masculine um 
Um, and and we've just been talking about masculinity and femininity, but if we're talking about um, extremities it, in this play, we really see um, masculinity in its in its various forms played out mm. on the stage because um, you know we see six different characters that all men um, involved in this uh, particular deal to build a tunnel um, that needs special concrete, uh, which I love as a terminology. <laughs> Is that real? Like that there's special concrete and normal concrete? Uh, I do believe I did some research and yes, I think it's real. <laughs> do people really refer to it as special concrete? Yes. Amazing. Mm. So Australian. And when you ask them what's the difference, they go, well, it's just more special than the normal <laughs> concrete. <Yeah. All> right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit worrying, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are these six characters and we see, um, you know, three transitions or different acts, uh, you would say. Mm. And you, you, Joe Petruzzi and Peter yourself play very different characters. And Aiden, the way that you have, um, you know, made it really a, a, a story that interlinks so many different people that you, you certainly wouldn't really think of, and you mm. wouldn't normally see maybe in that format or that structure in a play. Mm. When you were constructing this play and writing it, what um, what led you to this particular formation? Uh, I think well. I think the key was actually just uh, what I wanted to do was write um, something in vernacular. I wanted to write to, you know, uh, uh, different classes of Australian vocab, basically. Um, and I wanted to do it just with two actors because, um, you know, there's there's an obvious thing that they're all men. Um, so I wanted to have a universality sort of uh, about those aspects of maleness, uh, about their manipulative uh, behaviours and all of that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and to do that, yeah, I wanted to use just two actors to mm. enact that. Um, uh, I th- yeah, and the other, the other point was really just language, seeing how language um, and how it's, it's like trickle-down economics, but this is um, trickle-down ethics. So when you see your leaders behaving in a certain way, it, it does give licence for you to then behave in a certain way and then your children see you behaving in that certain way and that becomes an acceptable part of society. Yeah, because we see here that you start off in government and then you move to the business world mm-hmm. and then you move to a prison. Mm. Um, so that's you know very illuminating in the fact that, yes, government sets the tone but it's not necessarily setting a very good tone in this example. No, and it, it, I, I think, I think those sort of things, and we see, you know, we're seeing it right across America at the moment. But they, they create a feedback loop. So behaviours that we're witnessing through media and uh, through our own personal lives um, start becoming the norm, if you know what I mean. And so, yeah. so uh, it's it gives licence to, yeah. to the to the the lesser uh, qualities in ourselves. Yeah, and. This universality of maleness, um, it's quite, I guess, shocking when you see the transition, particularly Peter's character from a public servant into um, this Coptic Greek man who is part of his family business, which is selling special and normal concrete. (laughs) Um, And, you know, you just morph with one very brief costume change into this completely opposite character Mm. um, with a a very good accent, may I add. It was (laughs) very entertaining. But, um, you know, how did you approach this... um, these act changes and these different characters, how did you manage um, and approach the the transitions? Um, 
Oh, it's such such a joy, obviously, as an actor, because you, um, yeah, you get to change hats every thirty minutes. It's, and it's you can feel the. Um, I mean, it's, you know, we're fragile, egocentric creatures. Actors <laughs> really, and, uh, it's so nice getting a feedback from an audience like that when they go, "Oh, wow, he's someone else now." You know, um, most plays and films, obviously, you play the same character for an hour and a half, two hours, and you um, and you have to go on this long journey with someone, and they'll go through twists and turns, hopefully interesting enough to keep you engaged, but often not. Mm. And um, so it's great. It's just, I love the kind of challenge of just flipping because it's not just about, um, yeah, as you, as you say, the character. Um, costume changes and stuff are quite minor, really. But um, I just love that sensation of shifting some sort of essential energy gear as an actor inside into a completely different... It's almost a placement of um, ego or id or essential identity or something, mm. you know, going from this very meek, sort of um, secure but um, you know, almost backstage sort of character, like a public servant who's really operating in a second rank behind a politician, you know, to someone who's right on the front foot, who's confident in his sort of identity and his sexuality and everything like those Greek boys are really just, this is who I am, take it or leave it, you know? Yeah. And then shifting energy again into the third character who's a, who's a sort of apparently downtrodden prisoner in, a, in the prison system, you know, who's, uh, who's uh, very used, used to sort of playing the... Um, the dog on the lead in a kind of, um, you know, a very severe kind of pecking order in a prison, but he's quite cunning in other ways and stuff, so they're quite different placements of energy. Very different. Um, so preparing for that's really, um, I mean, I, I'm a bit of an outside-in actor, I suppose, like I'll sort of find the crust of the person from the outside a bit, how they move and that sort of stuff, and then I'll let that sort of infect me inwards because... Um, I find that's quicker and it sort of gives you a, a clear shape to work within, you know. Yeah. But also Aiden's a... Um, I mean, as Aiden and I have worked together a lot over the years and uh, he knows how to manage me. <laughs> <laughs> Almost 30 years has it been? Oh, uh, God, I, yeah. Surely that's not true, yeah. I um, saw an interview with you maybe five or six years ago and you said 25 years. Yeah, okay. wow. Yeah. I don't think that's technically possible, actually. We probably we probably <laughs> developed some sort <laughs> of dimension. Don't we? Well, I'm only 27. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, we worked together when I first came down to Melbourne, I think, which was in the early 90s, maybe late 80s or something. Yeah, so it's been a while. Yeah. It's probably time to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Never. There was, there was a uh, oh, just anecdote time, yeah. but um, uh, years ago Pete was uh, doing a beautiful performance in a Matt Cameron piece and we are getting towards a pointy end of production and about to do a, um, a, a dress or a company run or something like that. And uh, Pete ran up to me and said, I... I I, th- I think I think the character needs a sword, <laughs> and he'd he'd been out the back getting bits of wood and tying them together to make it himself a sword. And he went on stage trying to make that work. Make that work. <laughs> Until he, How did that go? Clearly uh, didn't. About half an hour in, he just threw it into the wings <laughs> and went. <laughs> it was a clown. I was playing a clown. A clown. Just, just okay, to clarify yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't playing Hamlet. <laughs> yeah. I think Hamlet would have a wooden sword. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but no, it's great. The other thing about working with old friends too is yeah. that you, you did have a shorthand, of course, you know, mm. and a sort of trust that means you can, um, yeah, and and also knowledge of the kind of territory that you're working in in terms of writing and direction. In Aiden's case, and probably my own strange kind of style of performance in his case, I guess so you've got a, you're sort of halfway there before you start in a way, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, Wait. no, it's a joy. Yeah, working with uh, Joe because I hadn't, mm. I'd never worked. I'd actually, I remember him from television. But um, yeah, I noticed him from television yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I'd never worked with him, and it was uh, just fan- he's great to work with. Um, and 
very different uh, type of actor, I think, to Peter, and mm. which works really well on stage. You're not doubling up dynamics or stylistics. Um, so, yeah, they, they complement each other, I think, Yeah, it, in, their, in their differences. They do, mm. and I agree. I, when I watched it, um, it reminds me because I did a little bit of acting and there's the VCA method and there's the NIDA method, mm. and it almost reminded me a little bit of that. There seemed to be like a VCA method, which was very like salt of the earth, and as you say, like body um, first and then the other seemed a little bit more f- screen-like um, yeah. but still very expressive and um, embedded in his own body but just, yeah, it had a different dynamic to he it. Is, he is quite a physical actor, I think. Yeah. Um, but he does approach work uh, thought by thought. Mm. So there's decisions made not just on every line but on kind of every word in every line, if you know what wow. I mean. So yeah. all of those have to be linked together and, and that is quite a slow process mm. as well and that's a NIDA thing i think from that era i'm not sure what they do now but yeah um but it does produce some beautiful There's a lot of work, work. with makeup now i think no oh really <laughs> <laughs> get sponsorship deals from large kind of uh, oh, yeah, yeah, pharmaceutical yeah. companies yeah. <laughs> l'oreal <laughs> yeah and so when we're talking about these characters and and the various ways that you're embodying them so you mentioned um that your the greek character you play is very um confident and uh, in, in contrast to your first character that you're playing and he's you know ordering around his really old mother who we don't see mm. um, he's basically screwing over his brother um, and it really is quite shocking but not so far removed from reality again similar to the politics that this is probably what goes on in family businesses or other businesses mm. Yeah, well, it's kind of um, it's interesting. It's funny you should say that because it's interesting what you don't think about when you're rehearsing too, in a way, but it's very true. I mean, that's that that, that piece is a family piece, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's a family. Uh, it's a play about a family running a business, and um, uh, we sort of did that when I grew up. We lived in a, with a business in the front of the house. My dad was a GP, actually. But um, so we were there was always business coming out into the lounge room and people sitting around doing the maths and accountancy and whatever and stuff and you'd sit there with someone's x-rays on the table with my dad looking at <laughs> someone's broken arm while you were um but it does yeah and i guess as an artist to some extent you you're always bringing work home yeah because of that there's this blurred line between um your, your personal relationships and what it is you're actually trying to achieve at work you know and these guys have just got that complete there's no there's almost no line no, no. there is it's, it blurs so much no. it all becomes one battlefield so they 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 fight about basically about uh their their upbringing uh and about who you know who who does mum love the most yeah. basically so that's one battlefield and the other one is clearly that's been um transmogrified on top of that which is who's going to run the company mm. um and, and you think of that one character is more competent at the beginning, but mm. then you figure out another might be slightly more effective in their eyes and mm. yeah. at running this business. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bit of generational warfare going on there as well. Mm. Um, the younger brother usurping the older brother, and you know, I'm the youngest of seven boys, and wow. I certainly <laughs> know know that story yeah. backwards, but. Um, yeah. You've won. You've won. Oh, I've won. I've won on every single top brother. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, that's very true. They are, you know, and uh, it's sort of um, each uh, each of those uh, scenes. There's three scenes, and each one I assigned a a kind of title to a chapter title. Um, The first one was called Aspire uh, about politics, and this one was called Respect, Mm. actually. 
Yeah, and I in, in way what you fight before in a family in a funny kind of ways. I mean, mm. I, my sister's in her; she's five years older than me now, and in a funny kind of way, we still wrestle with each other over the idea of respect in a funny kind of way. Because I think you go through as when you're a kid, you what are you going to be when you grow up? And that conversation is a conversation you have a lot with your family, mm. yep. and the choices that you make, um, you're going to have to live with with your family for the next until you die, basically. You know, and so you're going, "How's that going?" And you know, <laughs> it's hard not to take this kind of almost perverse pleasure in your siblings' failures, you know, because they're going <laughs> to promote you up the pecking order. A bit, you know, oh, it's a shame what she did; it didn't really work out, did it? But I'm going well, mum. And yeah. You're still sort of vying for, you know, the, the sort of winning. Yeah, you know, it's funny, yeah. isn't it? We never, yeah. we never grow up really. No. Well, someone definitely ends up on, on top in that scene mm, and yeah. it is really an impressive shift in the power dynamics in a very short span of time, really. Mm. And then similarly, another power shift happens and I really won't give this away because the final part is, um, yeah, just so shocking. But first of all, um, you know, Peter, you come out with blood <laughs> everywhere, basically, stage blood. Um, and I, my first thought was, gosh, this must be the last scene because there's no way you can wash yeah. that off. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. So I was a little bit sad actually because for me the play had gone so quickly I actually wasn't expecting this to be the last oh, okay. the last part. So mm. I was a little bit sad actually mm. when that happened. Mm. Um, but then, you know, we see it almost was kind of like a, an example of um, – Barwon Prison, for example, where you have the highest security prison and there are these very serious criminals who are in there for murder and somehow this scene does tie in to the first uh, or the first part, the first act. Mm. Um, and the characters, again, are very different. Um, and I guess you've taken... A, you, you start... You start off very, uh, Peter, you start off very, yeah, as you say, benign almost. Mm. Um, and then you move into this idea of, um, you know, uh, really Aussie uh, but still somewhat corporate businessy person. And then you're moving into really like... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> pretty damaged pretty goods. Pretty bad, yeah. Like it's mm. there's no coming back from mm. where you are mm. in that in mm. that point. Mm. And it was very, yeah. Once again, realistic in the way that you've portrayed it. But oh, um, mm. yeah. Well, mm. it reminded me. I did have a school excursion. We went to Bowen Prison and we oh, met some what of an odd excursion. I know for legal <laughs> studies in year eleven. Yeah. I was like, why is this a thing? Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, we met um, some of the people, and you know, it was quite shocking for. Mm. A, a what was I, 17-year-old mm. female to be confronted with these men who actually had committed, um, you know, manslaughter and mm -hmm. serious crimes. Mm. Um, and there is this uh, disturbing relationship between prisoners and prison guards, which mm. this scene really does mm. capture. Mm. Um Without giving too much away, because and I know you'll be better at walking around this <laughs> yeah. subject than I am, that's why I'm not really going to touch it. But um, maybe I'll start with you, Aidan, when you were writing this, the final um, act or scene, what um, were you hoping to draw together in terms of the, the whole play and, and the story that it's been gone, going on? And also, can you, um, I guess, explain some of the inspiration behind these two characters at the end? Um Interesting question. I'm not sure I got an interesting answer. No, that's fine. When you, I find anyway, when I write stuff and then people say what what was behind it, I quite often I don't know. Yeah. Um, or I've forgotten. It's the or, nature of art. Well, it is, and you kind of you're working sort of. I I, I work pretty fast, 
normally. Yeah. So you're working sort of fairly furiously, and you're not you're not notating what you're doing, if you know what I mean. Like you, um, but obviously I had to I had to tie in uh, the narrative that runs through. It's like this jigsaw narrative that uh, runs through the all three pieces. Um, but I I do remember. Uh, a, a little bit of a light bulb moment where I went, well, this one actually has to be about love. Um, uh, and that's what it's titled as well. That mm. chapter's called Love. Um, and I think I thought that because, you know, the other ones are, you know, they're, they're about self-interest and um, and basically saving saving your ass. Mm. Uh, and this one, I thought that you know, the, it should have real stakes in it and actually really mean something to to both characters involved. Um, so they're they're two uh, prisoner and a guard who've known each other for over twenty years, I think. Um, and they're both, uh, and again, just they're, they're they're both looking at how to get out yep. of this situation. One of them in particular. One um, of them more likely to get out than the other, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> both are inextricably linked and tied to each other mm. in a very perverse kind of way, um, but not in a way that you expect. Mm. So, and it, and it, as I say, it does tie into the overall plot or story, which is that, you know, there's corruption at the highest levels of state government, that a royal commission is happening, but there are all these other hidden players that you might not normally see Mm. um, that have led to this point where Mm. a minister is in jeopardy and also he's jockeying for Mm. the leadership, which is even more Mm. shocking, Mm. uh, (laughs) but probably also, you know, possible in reality. Mm. Um, So... It's happening right now in Canberra. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not go there, should we? (laughs) Why is that SWAT team outside the door? (laughs) But, and the reason why, um, you know, and this, the title of the play is The Way Things Work, and it points to this, I guess, idea or what's well, a little bit despairing because is, is that really just the status quo like is that is that really how the way things work you know are we stuck with that and is this you know part of human nature um mm. that when you get close to power or close to money it corrupts and um and i guess how how did you in in terms of power and corruption and this theme that is throughout the play um do you think that it's the status quo or, you know, what, what conclusion did you come to? Um, I, well, I, again, a really good question. But, um, but as a playwright, I don't think it's my job to answer those questions. To ask I mean. them. Uh, to posit them, hopefully, yeah, yeah. And, and, and posit them in a kind of provocative way. Mm. Um, I don't, um, well, I don't think it should be the way things work. Um, uh, as to whether it is the way things work, you know, that's up to an audience to kind of go away and say, well, maybe maybe that's true, uh, but maybe something has to be done about that. Yeah, yeah. And just finally, um, Peter, when when you're um, acting with Joe and you get to the end of the show, is there any kind of kiss and makeup that you <laughs> engage in? Well, he's got a massive advantage because he's not covered in blood. Yeah, exactly. So he always gets to the bar before me. <laughs> By the time I go out there, there's just a couple of lonely bar flies or unemployed actors, you know, <laughs> and deal with the dregs. Yeah. But, um, but uh, no, it's kind of, um, um, yeah, funnily enough, players like this where you actually get to sort of purge on stage are usually the happiest players to be in. Yeah. I find the, the, the most tricky players to be in are kind of light-hearted comedies. That's where you have most of your fallouts with people. Mm. 
um, because comedy is so sort of technical and specific and comedians are so precious and weird <laughs> that you um, that's that's kind of when you tend to have disagreements, you know. Yeah. When yeah. you do a play like this, I think, because you do actually work through different states on stage, there's a sort of trust there that you need with the other actor that kind of gets you through and so it's actually quite a, um, quite a bonding experience in a funny mm. kind of way. Mm. Um, yeah, no, we, we get along great. You know. Yeah. I think, I think they're just picking up on the... The um, question before about the corruption thing, I, I, I suppose I've always seen it in a way as from the inside as a, um, I, I wouldn't call it a morality play because that would be, you know, ramming it down the audience's throat, but I do see it like that in a way, like a, um, that we're kind of all, you know, we've all got a little seed of um, evil in us and, and we just need to keep an eye on it, I suppose. Mm, keep you know, it in check. And that thing that's, yeah, that, that, um, that weakness unchecked can become a bit rampant, you know. Yeah, so, and systemic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm. and, it's good. And, and so we just need to be aware of it when we see it and when it's in us, I suppose, that we're not, you know, becoming part of the problem, I guess. Um, we possibly can't do much more than that. Yeah. yeah. Did, did I mention it's also very funny? It is hilarious. <laughs> it's, it's a comedy, Pete. Remember we talked <laughs> about this right. before? Sorry, I made it, we started going down. <laughs> we're, cra- we're going down. <laughs> that is true, actually. There's a lot of belly laughs and it's really, yeah. there's very few moments when people stop laughing so um yeah it's very enjoyable and it does have that dark and light contrast throughout the play so um i certainly enjoyed it and really um thank you both thank you and joe who um is not here for really you know putting such heart and soul into a play and also making it so entertaining thank you thank Thank you you. so much yeah thanks for having us on a pleasure And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR. I'm Amy Mullins and I'm really excited now to have John Pilger in the studio with me and he's here to discuss his new film, The Coming War on China. Now, John Pilger really doesn't need an introduction, but just in case you're not aware, John Pilger is a renowned investigative journalist and documentary filmmaker, very prolific, and uh, he picks some pretty serious and under under focused uh, topics and I'm really excited to be just going over the various issues that uh, he brings up in this new film which really focuses on uh, China and the US so thanks very much John for joining us you're very welcome first of all the title of the film is called the coming war on China Mm -hmm. this is suggesting that a war might be waged on or against China by another actor so obviously here we've got the United States Mm. This is a pretty different narrative. We don't see that narrative come up very often. And the only time I've actually really come across any uh, of this kind of narrative is from Chinese people themselves. So really, what brought you to this point Mm. of wanting to cover this story and understand um, the dynamics that are really at play in the Asia-Pacific region Mm. between China and America? Well, it's a very good point. Why don't we see it from that perspective? And that says a great deal about that misnamed creature called the mainstream media and a lot of other um, of our own kind of propaganda, which usually leaves out at least 50% of every major story. Um, What made me start to make a film about this? Well, it's two years ago and... Uh, I was intrigued when Barack Obama announced in the Australian Parliament here in Canberra when he was here uh, 
what was called a pivot to Asia. And what that really meant was the transfer of something like two-thirds of U.S. naval forces into the Asia-Pacific. So I researched this and um, I found that, uh, of course, all of these were to be targeted at China. And it was becoming clear then that a new enemy for the United States was arising, and that was China. Uh, why? Because China is the world's second biggest economic power, and just its mere existence uh, threatens the dominance of the United States. So here we have the top dog being feeling rather insecure about its dominant place in the world. But that's all very well. Those are kind of abstract terms, but this was developing into something that could be extremely provocative towards a nuclear power, which China is. Um, and uh, uh, unfortunately, the arrival of President Trump has made um, those uh, um, uh, considerations and this film all too timely. The US has clearly declared China a new enemy. It doesn't know how to fight this new enemy. The US is not used to fighting big countries. It usually fights defenseless, small, or rather takes over small defenseless countries. This is a big country. So there's a great deal of propaganda being thrown at China. There's, uh, and, and as I say, a great deal of propaganda provocation in these 400 bases, US bases that surround China uh, are missiles and bombers and battle groups, all of them um, suggesting the possibility of accident. Most wars begin by accident. I don't suggest that the United States wants a nuclear war with China or anyone else. But when you push it that far, then the, the odds narrow very quickly. So I think at the moment we're in a very precarious situation uh, towards China. It is astonishing that in Australia we are meant to be in the Asia-Pacific region. We know so little from, as you suggested at the beginning, from that perspective. And let's pick up on a couple of those points. So you say it can start by accident. Mm. You, I've heard you mention that it really takes 12 minutes to make that decision from when you, you realise there's something wrong and mm. to when the, the missile is launched. Mm. That's a pretty fast turnaround. And as we saw in the film, um, we almost came close to that uh, missile or a nuclear weapon being launched. Mm. Indeed. I mean, in the film, uh, there's an interview with... Uh, uh, a US Air Force serviceman who was part of uh, a nuclear missile battery on Okinawa. And during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was all about Cuba and the Soviet Union, um, they were ordered to fire their nuclear missiles, not at Cuba or the Soviet Union, but at China. And it was only the querying of this by one particular officer when he couldn't work out why. Why China? Why are we targeting a country that is not involved in this unfolding crisis? Um, that the order was re-examined and it was found to be a false order. So 
when we're talking about mistakes and accidents, that's a, almost a classic form of not so much a mistake or an accident. It was actually quite deliberate because the person who gave this order was later stood down and something had happened with that person. But it's quite interesting. He talks about, you know, he came out that day and realised that they had had the power to really, if not blow up the world, blow up a lot of the world just by that, that, uh, that wanton, one wanton act. Yeah, and you spoke to a nuclear expert and there's this great graph which really mm. demonstrates just how significant uh, a nuclear weapon being fired would have, even just one of them, uh, and that it really would blanket almost the entire earth and have significant consequences even if people weren't wiped out or killed mm. because of it, but that we wouldn't really be able to function. Environmentally, it would be a complete nightmare. No, no one doubts that now. It's the way it's... it's uh, is it really the, front of mind, though? Yes. Uh, is it front of mind? Yeah. No, no. And that's what's so extraordinary. It, it almost has a, a kind of similarity with the way people um, are, are, in, are discouraged from understanding what is happening to the climate. Uh, but this is rather more urgent because this could happen literally overnight in which he describes... Uh, a 10-year period which would be dark and cold and food crops would not be grown. You couldn't grow them. So those of us who would survive would have to scratch at the earth. Now, this sounds all pretty doomsday and people may draw back and say, oh, how can I imagine that? But, you know, it's not all that long ago when many of us went into the streets uh, well, for some people, it may be quite a long time ago, but there were great movements of people opposed to this kind of Armageddon, this kind of this this apocalyptic view of humanity. Uh, that's gone away, but the nuclear threat hasn't gone away, and we really have to consider that. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like we've been focusing on landmines and other kind of war issues, but we've really got a bit of nuclear fatigue. I don't know whether we've got nuclear fatigue. I think our, our propaganda, our manipulation in Western countries has sent us off in other directions, away from even examining the causes of war, examining how politics really work. Uh, I think we've been sent off on on single issues often and uh, we've often concentrated on our own concerns rather than on something that collectively would affect all of us so much it could end life as we know it. And that's, that's the most, surely the most urgent uh, possibility. And uh, so the film is not meant to frighten people although it's meant to warn and it's meant to give information. And we should all be grown-ups, I think, and start to think about that, that it isn't just, for example, the personality of Donald Trump, but there is a great system behind Trump, well before Trump, long before Trump, that has produced something that we need to know about, we need to analyse, and we need to be alerted uh, to its changes. 
You do. And uh, there is a really excellent quote at the end of the film, which picks up on that, where you say that it delivers a warning to all of us. Can we really afford to be silent? Mm. And I think that's important because you're not only saying that we need to be aware of this issue and discuss it, but then we need to start taking action and collectively and to Mm. think of foreign relations and foreign policy and these issues not as distanced from the everyday and from us Mm. uh, over there in that kind of parliament, but actually here in the grassroots that affects Mm. all of humanity. Mm. Mm. Exactly, yeah. That's just so important. I think what really draws it out is this significant uh, focus that you have in your film on um, America's involvement in the Asia-Pacific, and this is really a case study of their imperialism Mm. and militarism. It's in the Marshall Islands in the Mm. 1940s. And I did a little bit of looking into the background of this, and uh, Marshall Islands isn't actually that far from Australia. It's Mm. probably closer than a lot of other nations that we have very close relations with. Mm. And uh, so it's got about 29 low-lying atolls and five islands and it was placed under this UN International Trusteeship Agreement mm. and it, it had a long history of being passed around between major powers and America ended up be- becoming the uh, administering authority mm. in 1947. But in 1946, it started evacuating Bikini Islanders, um, that Bikini Island is, or atoll is part of the Marshall Islands and uh, that was even before they'd taken over uh, administership of this particular uh, country. And uh, that was to start commencing nuclear testing. And Mm. this is in the height or the beginning of the Cold War because that's the end of really World War II. You really describe and you show the effects of the nuclear testing and certainly the most significant one is um, the Castle Bravo uh, bomb, uh, which was a hydrogen bomb. And Mm. as you say in the film and it's really quite shocking, is that the hydrogen bomb had the explosive power of the bombing of Hiroshima 1,000 times over. So Mm. this just was huge. It was unprecedented Mm. and it was the largest detonation of a nuclear bomb that America has ever conducted Mm. that we know of. Why did you focus on the Marshall Islands to highlight this and did you see it as one of the most poignant examples of American involvement in the Asia-Pacific? Well, I th- well, yes, partly that, yes. But for two reasons, I suppose. Uh, the first was, as you've described, it was uh, not the beginning of the nuclear age. The nuclear age, of course, began with the, the atomic bombing of Japan. But this is where nuclear weapons were tested. And perhaps the most shocking statistic of all was one that... Uh, was told to me by Tony de Brum, who was then the foreign minister of the Marshall Islands, that between 1946 and 1958, the equivalent of one Hiroshima bomb, the equivalent explosive power of one Hiroshima, was exploded every day for 12 years in these islands. Now, as you mentioned, this was the UN, uh, the US after the Second World War got UN trusteeship of this. And this was meant to be a sacred trust in which it looked after, it was meant to look after the health and well-being of the Marshall Islanders. Instead, they were used as guinea pigs. And the film reveals... um, an experiment called Project 4.1, which was originally set up as the testing of mice under 
uh, in nuclear explosions and became the testing of human beings. And the reason I started the film was, I suppose, first to remind viewers that this is the end product. If countries' nuclear powers go to war, this is likely to happen. Here you have it. Here you have the victims of nuclear weapons. This is what's likely to happen all over the world. It was also, I think, to show the extent and ruthlessness of post-World War II US power. But right in the middle of the Marshall Islands, on the biggest island, and that's Kwajalein, is the Ronald Reagan Missile Test Facility. This is a very secretive base. It was set up in the late 1960s with the target as China. So there's the connection between what the US did in Bikini and after the Second World War throughout these islands brought round to the possibility of a coming war on China. This particular base commands the Pacific all the way to China and it, it, it tests missiles and space program missiles that uh, can be uh, used against China. So the, the whole Asia-Pacific, it's one of America's stepping stones to um, a great country on the other side of the Pacific with which it has a very troubled history. It, co- it was one of those that colonised and exploited China um, and it's very interesting when you read of Donald Trump's now outrageous ban on Muslims and so on, but that's not new. I mean, the, <laughs> that's been going on, I mean, as if, as if Trump invented it. For, as James Bradley, the author, explains in my, in my film, for almost a century, Chinese were banned from the United States for one reason only, that they were Chinese. Um, so that that whole sense of China and the Chinese as being the yellow peril is very much part of our uh, political culture and particularly in Australia. You know, it's not all that long ago where we regarded Asia as something that might fall down on us as if by the force of gravity and that was about yellow peril. The words might not have been said, although they were said, of course, by Mr Barton and others in the beginning of the independent Australia. So that sense of China as being the great other, the great threat, is very much... uh, is, is something that is being exploited now. It's a very... And it, it's being done in a subtle way. It insinuates our media. So we have, for example, a rather verbose American admiral turns up. There's one called Admiral Harry Harris. He's always coming down here with his maps and graphs and pictures about China building another great wall in the sand across the Pacific. So China's again the threat. And Australia should make up its mind which side it's on. Australia does has a dilemma, have a dilemma because its biggest trader is China, but it has this, this, uh, this relationship with the United States that it really needs to revise. So th- all these add up to a warning that we have to start thinking 
outside what we're told. That's the essence of this film. Just think outside what you're told day after day. don't accept assumptions, don't accept stereotypes. This doesn't mean to say that anyone's apologising for the for the lack of freedom in China or anything like that, but we don't want to go to war with a great country. No, I mean, you really have opened a bit of a Pandora's box of uh, free intellectual thinking, which is wonderful, <laughs> uh, because, you know, one of the examples you give is that in China with the South China Sea and the Spratly Islands, it's mm. highly contested and it's only really come to a, a real boiling point because of American involvement there mm. and that uh, the media coverage of this issue is really that China is the aggressor that's unrealistic and irrational and, mm. well, maybe not even irrational, but um, actually really calculating about how it's going to dominate the South China Sea and that that's an act of aggression against America as well as its America's allies mm. in the Asia-Pacific. How do we... I mean, it's clear that you really do need to keep questioning these narratives, not only because China is our close neighbour and we have economic links, but there's a lot of Chinese migrants in Australia. And this whole idea that they're different from us or that they do represent some kind of threat is quite shocking. And one of the best quotes, I think, in your film is from um, Eric Lee, who's Mm. an entrepreneur and he's a thinker as well. And he was talking about the fact that China's objectives are modest. He's quite bemused when he says this (laughs) because he can't quite understand why America perceives them as this really big, hairy, evil threat. And that really all that China wants to do is to keep the US from dominating the Asia Pacific. Mm. And as you say, there is this kind of metaphorical noose around China. China with these 400 military bases. Do you think China's being fair and reasonable in terms of its response? And how do you perceive America on, in this as well? Well, I don't know about fair and reasonable. They are they're going to take a very hard-nosed, pragmatic view of the threat. And America is now perceived, in one sense as a direct threat. For example, China has changed its nuclear weapons strategy from low alert to high alert. That's had almost no publicity in the West, certainly not in Australia. Uh, Not all that long ago, China used to keep its missiles and nuclear warheads separate. That's low alert. It now puts them together. That's high alert. That's as a direct result of the kind of provocations that have come from, for example, in 2015, Operation Talisman Sabre, huge uh, naval, air and naval exercise in which Australia, Australian forces played a prominent role, uh, rehearsed a blockade through the Malacca Straits and the Lombok Straits of China. Now, Uh, Yes, we knew something about this exercise in Australia, but we didn't know what it was really up to. Well, if you look at the website on the Australian government's page, it actually is very vague. You would not know at all what it was for or even really where it actually was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, the, the power that we have to embrace is the power of information always. That's number one. Number one, I mean, that's why the conversation we're having is valuable, that anything that starts to question the the dominant assumptions that really 
give public acquiescence to very, very dangerous policies. That's why information is so important. And that's why governments and their vested interests place so much importance and put so much money. The Pentagon spends billions on propaganda. Uh, One of their generals, General David Petraeus, some years ago said that, uh, and he was, when he was running the war in Afghanistan, said that uh, this was a war of perception played through the media. And he would almost boasted that he spent more time with the media than he did on military matters because that's what really mattered. And it's, it's that that we have to really understand about this. And China is one very vivid example, a very urgent example of, of this. Uh, I mean, the thing that I... I hadn't been to China for a long time. I was astonished that how little I knew. I was astonished how little we know. I was astonished by all the... Uh, so so many of the the stereotypes fell away and they didn't fall away without me understanding that as the film makes very clear in China you cannot cr- openly criticize the center though it's not a monolith it's very interesting it's not a monolith the the script of this film uh, is actually being published by a university in China the full wow. script but the film itself, uh, the Chinese are desperate to show the film. But as they say to me privately, sorry, we can't Scott Tiananmen Square in it. I make clear what, what an open sore Tiananmen Square is politically in China. And there are people there who have criticised Beijing, criticised the government and paid for it with their freedom. But it's not monolithic. And that makes it very interesting. Um, there's so many interesting things about this this massive, the world's most populous nation, now the world's second biggest economic power, that we just simply don't know. Um, we live in this world where we're always playing with our phones and we think that uh, we actually are saturated with information. We're not. Uh, we're saturated with something called media. Um, and this is one example Mm. this is one example where we really have to change course and find out yeah well mediated information that's really not necessarily giving the whole picture no and as this film um, really does fill that void that is it's completely missing in our discussion so I'm really glad that you have completed this film and it's showing and that uh, people have access to this information Mm. in a way that they can weigh the evidence in front of them and start questioning their reality Mm. Well, I, so am I, and I, I, it's getting a good run in Australia. Uh, it's showing at the in Melbourne. It's showing at the starting at the Nova Cinema on uh, February the eighth, and uh, will run there. And it's being broadcast nationwide on SBS on April the sixteenth. So I hope many people watch it and begin talking. That's what we need to do. We definitely do. Thank you so much, John, for sharing your insights with us and for taking that huge trip around Asia Pacific to actually Mm. speak to the actors involved in this story. Thank you. You're very welcome.
And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.